0: Well, good afternoon. It is good to see all of you here. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Kenny Trax and I'm a pastoral resident here at Zoe. That's just a fancy way of saying I'm a pastor in training. So if you're visiting, welcome because we're really glad that you're here today. If you're a regular or you're a member, hey, we're glad you're here too. So welcome. You know, as holidays go, the one that we just celebrated is one of the most divisive and controversial. I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Valentine's Day. I think there's significant weight to the protest, that it is kept aloft by Hallmark and uh, greeting card companies and the people who sell those little chocolates and those, those little candies as well. I read that Americans were expected to spend $25.8 billion on Valentine's Day this past year. My wife Eunice and I got into the fun a little bit. We don't usually, but we did make a big deal out of it this year with a Texas classic Whataburger. (laughs) But one thing that Valentine's Day does have going for it, I think it deserves a place in our American calendar, perhaps, is that it's a it's a holiday about making other people happy. And it's kind of considered the holiday where you get tested, right? You get tested, like, how well you know somebody else, how well you can delight them. That's what Valentine's Day is about. But when you care about somebody, you want to delight them, right? You want to know them well enough so that you know how to delight them. And you want to learn more and more how to delight them. And there's a freedom and a comfort even when you're doing something that you know is going to delight that special someone or your child or whoever it may be. When I was driving home with Whataburger, I knew that Eunice was really going to enjoy it. So I was excited. I was excited to bring it to her. But you're not here For my romance tips, that would be a disappointing sermon indeed. No, you came to hear from God. And at our church, we really believe that God has communicated with humanity. And one of the ways he's done that is through his word, the Bible. So we're going to spend some substantial time this afternoon looking at his word, the Bible. Maybe not as substantial a time as we would if Pastor Jesse were preaching, but substantial nevertheless. And we're continuing in our series. We're continuing with 2 Samuel 22. So you can start opening up and turning there. 2 Samuel 22. We're in a section of appendices to the books of First and Second Samuel that provide an overall divine assessment of the reign of David. And this chapter in particular gives us a couple of things that are interesting. One is that it provides a theological commentary on David's life, which is the main focus of these books of Samuel. And it gives us a first hand account of David's emotional experience. We haven't heard David speak in the first person all that much in Samuel, but we hear it in this chapter. Now, this section is also a poem. If you've opened up to it, you can see that probably your Bible splits it up into lines of varying lengths. It's not narrative, it's poetry. And because it's a poem, that's going to affect how we approach it this afternoon. We're not going to slice and dice it too much because poems communicate not only by their content, but by their form and their flow as well. So we're going to read it in full, First, And then we're going to come back and look at smaller chunks. Because it's a poem, too, it means we don't necessarily need to hit every word in order to understand what's going on. And you'll be relieved about that because it's 51 verses long. So listen as I read 2 Samuel 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me, In the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the men of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. There's a lot going on here, isn't there? What would you say this poem is about? Well, There's probably a few answers we could give there, but there's an idea that shows up at an important turning point that I want to highlight. Look at verse 20. He, God, this is the second half, he, well, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This chapter is answering a question, and that question is, what delights God, what delights God? So that's our question today as well. We're going to be answering it this afternoon, and we're going to see four answers in this chapter. I'll give them to you as we go along. I'm warning you, the first two points are longer than the last two. So when we finish point two, we're on the home stretch. Just stick with me. So here's answer number one. What delights God? God delights in being a refuge. God delights in being a refuge. That's in verses 1 through 20. So look with me at verse 1. This verse isn't part of the poem, but it sets the context. It says that David wrote it, quote, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So we know from this that this must be happening or being written at the end of David's life. After Absalom, after Sheba, this was a time when David finally had rest from his enemies, and he's reflecting back about how God has always consistently rescued him. Now, this song must have become one of David's greatest hits. Why do I say that? Because it may sound familiar. It's also in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 18. They're almost identical. They're the same song. So in that, in the Psalms, it's probably like, for corporate worship, but here it's a private reflection on David's life. And it's a reflection that David is praying to God. So when David picks up his pen and begins writing this song, where does he begin? Take a look. Verses two and three. He begins with God. He piles up these adjectives, rock, fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of salvation, stronghold, savior. He's making the point that God is his safety, his strong place, his refuge, the place where he can hide, the place where nobody can get him. Growing up, I, I loved watching the History Channel. I spent way too many hours watching Ancient Aliens and all those uh, other shows. But I remember watching a tour of the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. Have you heard of this place? This is a government facility near Colorado Springs. It's actually still in use, but it was built in the 50s, the 1950s, and it began its existence as a doomsday bunker. This was a place for the United States to coordinate a counterattack if there were a nuclear war. So they built it literally into a mountain. It's under 2,000 feet of granite. The only way to access this place is through an access tunnel, and there's multiple sets of 25-ton blast doors where they can just close all of them and there's no other way to get through. It's built to withstand a 30-megaton nuclear explosion, basically detonated right on top of it. I don't know how much 30 megatons is, but that's a lot, right? Nothing can penetrate the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. It's a true refuge. And this is the kind of image that comes to my mind. If we're translating what David's saying into the modern day, God is like the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. God is a safe place to hide. But David's saying he doesn't need a doomsday bunker because he has God. And God hears his call. That's in verse 4. God hears his call when he calls out. But, That doesn't mean David had an easy life, right? We know that from the book of Samuel. After that confident opening declaration, David introduces his trials in verses 5 and 6. The waves of death, torrents of destruction, cords of Sheol. Now, David wasn't lost at sea, but he's using this metaphor of dark and stormy Sees to stand for the sufferings that he endured. This is David's poetic way of describing how he nearly lost his life multiple times in, in the books of Samuel. So think back to how David was, for example, on the run from Saul. You know, we actually don't know how long this was. Some people estimate that it was as short as a year being a year on the run. Some people think it was seven years or longer. Imagine living in caves, living in a foreign nation, needing to pretend to be crazy and stuff, always looking over your shoulder. And then, after he'd established his kingdom, the whole thing happened again with Absalom, his own son. He was on the run again. David says that these trials were like waves pounding down on his head, pushing him under. If you've ever been out in the ocean, you've been knocked down by a big wave... You know what this feels like. David's using that image. He's being pushed under. And sometimes that's what it feels like our trials are doing to us, right? It's a pretty accurate image. At these times in David's life, things couldn't have been more desperate. But then look in verse 7. God intervenes. God intervenes. And then in verses 8 through 16, we hear about how God intervenes. But did you notice it's it's not the kind of image that we would usually think of with God, right? This is a picture of a fire-breathing monster, smoke rising from his nostrils, coals and fire coming out of his mouth. Thunder, a voice like thunder. Look down at those verses. This should be a scary picture to us. Think about it. Just to take one of these images, the thunder in verse 14. We just recently moved to Texas. For the most part, we love Texas weather, but uh, the thunderstorms are something else here, right? Uh, A couple of weeks ago, it was five or six in the morning, and the rain was pouring down, the wind was going, and I was half awake, but then all of a sudden, our room just flooded with light and literally half a second later, boom, and I was like, that thunder is right on top of us and then Eunice had to peel me off the ceiling and I didn't sleep for another hour. This psalm is saying God's voice is like that. When he wants to raise his voice, it's like thunder. It's louder than thunder. Why would David describe God in this terrifying way? Because he wants us to know that no matter how terrifying David's enemies were, God is scarier. God is more terrifying. It's like that quote from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, if you've heard of it. Aslan, is Aslan a tame, safe lion? No, he's not. But he's good. And it's good that he's not safe when he's on your side. When he's on your side, you want him to be scary. And this God that David's talking about was coming for David, not to destroy him, but to rescue him. This terrifying God was David's refuge. In verse 17, we see God's deliverance of David. David says, God drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy. Again, this is poetry, but we can think back to the story a couple of times that that David was rescued through God's miraculous intervention. Do you remember that time back in 1 Samuel when Saul was just about to catch David and then Saul gets word that the Philistines are attacking somewhere else and Saul had to leave? God brought the Philistines to protect David. And then more recently, you remember how God thwarted the counsel of Ahithophel? Ahithophel had that good advice Hey, if you catch David, if you cross the river today, you're going to catch David. But God took that wise advice, turned it on its head, and Ahithophel, they didn't listen to Ahithophel. And that's a way that God protected David. That's how he rescued him. So Christian, we should take something from this. No matter how terrifying your trials, God is more terrifying And it's a good thing because he's on your side. There's no trial that scares God. There's no enemy that has God shaking in his boots. He's the scariest one. And he's your God. He's strong. He's stronger than whatever is assailing you. And he's promised us that he will deliver us and rescue us. Either that's going to come in earthly deliverance sometime in this life or like he did with Paul at the end of his life. He's going to deliver us safely into his heavenly kingdom. But deliverance will come. Deliverance will come, Christian. Why did God rescue David, though? That's a question that we start to answer in in the next part of this uh, poem, but we begin to get an answer in verse 20. So look at verse 20 with me. We see that David says, God rescued me because, that's going to give the reason, because he delighted in me. God delighted in David. God delighted in being David's refuge. Remember, God had graciously chosen David. David didn't show up for a job interview with God. God didn't look at his resume and decide that he wanted David. No, he knew that David was weak and God gave him his grace. And this should encourage us too, because God didn't choose us because of our resume. God didn't choose us because of how good we are or how strong we were. We didn't interview for the job. If you're a Christian, God chose you out of his good pleasure because he loves you. And so he's going to delight to be your refuge as well. That means we're not inconveniences to God when we go to him, when we pray. It glorifies God when we take refuge in him. So take refuge in him. God delights in being a refuge to his children. That's the first answer to that question we see. What delights God? God delights in being a refuge. We can now turn to the second thing that God delights in. In verses 21 through 31, answer number two God delights in humble, faithful obedience. God delights in humble, faithful obedience. We know that God delighted in David because of his sovereign choice of him. We know that from the wider context of the book. We know that from the wider context of the Bible. But in these verses, especially 21 through 28, David draws attention to another reason that God delighted at him. So take a look at those again. We're not going to read through them all right now, but just skim over it. Let me ask you honestly, though, do these verses make you uncomfortable at all? They made me a little uncomfortable when I was starting preparation for this sermon because, you know, as Christians, we confess the great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We know that we're only saved by faith. There's nothing we could do. There's no credit that we could take. But when we read these verses, it can really sound like David is taking credit for his salvation. I mean, who among us would say we are righteous? Who among us would say we have clean hands who would call ourselves blameless. So we need to answer this question. Is David saying that he was saved through works and not faith? Well, it's good practice if you run into an issue like this in the Old Testament to look to the New Testament and see if it helps clarify what's going on. We use clearer scripture to interpret less clear scripture, so we're going to do that right now. Turn to Hebrews 11 with me. Hebrews eleven five through 6. That's toward the end of the New Testament. After the letters of Paul, Hebrews 11:5 through6 <clears throat> I'll read it. Hebrews 11:5 through6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Look at verse 6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So we have to understand what question is being answered here. The question being answered in Hebrews 11 here is not, How do you get saved? No, the question is, how do you please God? Those are two different questions. And here, Enoch is being given as an example of somebody who pleased God. Enoch not only had faith, but if you look back way at the beginning when Enoch is talked about in Genesis 5, it says that he walked with God. He walked with God. That undoubtedly means that he not only had faith, but he lived a life a life of faith-filled, faithful obedience, abundant in good works. So when verse 6 here in Hebrews 11 is saying, without faith it is impossible to please him, it's saying that faith is necessary, but not completely sufficient to please God in the way that it's talking about. But when we obey with faith, we can please God and he'll even reward us for our obedience, that's what it's saying here. So what does Hebrews 11, five through six, how does this help us understand Second Samuel 22? Well, they're both answering the same question. Remember, the question is not, how do you get saved? That's not the question being asked here, because you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. There's nothing that you can contribute to that. if you're anything that you do the question that Hebrews and David are asking is how do you please God? How do you please God? And the answer is through faith and faith-filled obedience. That's how you please God. And God even promises to reward that faith-filled obedience. So doing things to please God is not opposed to trusting him and relying on his grace. Grace and obedience Go together in the Christian life. Trust and obey, like we sing. And God will even reward and respond in kind to our mercy, blameless, purity, etc. when we're living in the context of his grace. Back in 2 Samuel 22, verses 26 and 27 are talking about this reciprocity, this back and forth that, that God says. And we discover more of God's mercy as we are merciful for example, but there's also a, a a truth on the other side of the coin. If we live crookedly, God makes our ways crooked. He makes it harder on us. That's the meaning of that word tortuous there. It's not torturous. It's not saying that God tortures the crooked. It's saying that he makes the crooked's way crooked. Okay, I know that was a lot of explanation. We got into the weeds there. But it's important for a couple of reasons. I mean, for one thing, it's important to clarify, uh, what we believe. You know, what we believe about justification, for example, about how somebody is saved. It's important to clarify that. But it's also important for a very practical reason. This is, this has very practical application to our lives. Why? Because this means that if you're a Christian, it really is possible to please God. It really is possible for a Christian to please God. I think that many of us, myself included at times, can live as if God is perpetually low-grade annoyed with us. God's wondering why we don't have it together yet. Or we think that God is impossible to please why even try sometimes if I'm just a sinner? But is that at all the way that a good and loving father is? One of my favorite things about Major League Baseball on TV, uh, and other sports as well have this, is the dad in the stands. You know what I'm talking about? The dad in the stands. You know, sometimes the proud father of the star player is there at the game and the cameraman will show him to you at the beginning of the game and the dad is relaxed he's he's drinking a beer or something he's excited looking he's chatting then you don't see him for a while and the camera comes back to him at a really tense part of the game when his boy's up to bat bases loaded and you see the dad he's always still he's not moving and then you see him again at the end of the game when when his team has won, when his boy's done a good job, and he's smiling, shaking hands, and he's hugging people, etc. He's the paradigm of fatherly pride. He's full of joy from his innate love for his son that, that fathers have, but then that love joins with his delight at seeing his son succeed. If we're sure that the dad in the stands at a baseball game delights in his child when his child does well, why would we think it's any different with God? Why would we think that our loving Heavenly Father wouldn't delight when we obey, when we do good, when we do good works? Why wouldn't we think He's pleased when we do good and obey Him? And sure enough, when we look in the Bible, we find that it really is possible for believers to please God. Now I'm going to read a couple of verses. You don't need to turn there. You can jot them down if you want a few verses from the new Testament about this second Corinthians five, nine says we make it our aim to please him. We aim to please God. That means it must be possible in some sense. Colossians one 10, which we read earlier, Paul prays that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Did you hear that? Fully pleasing to him. A Christian can be fully pleasing to God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. They're already pleasing God. Paul just encourages them to do it more. It really is possible to please the Lord with our faith-filled obedience and good deeds. God really is pleased even with our often imperfect attempts to obey him. So brother, sister, if you believe the gospel and you're sincerely trying to obey the Lord and not keeping your pet sins or anything like that, then you can be comforted that the Lord is pleased with you. The Lord is pleased with you. Did you keep your temper at your children this morning? even though it was hard? The Lord was pleased with that. Did you show up to work this week and do your best to provide for your family, even though you really wish you could be doing something else? Well, the Lord smiled on that. Did you give time or money or energy again to that family member who should have it together by now? Well, that made the Lord happy. Remember, David is reflecting back on his life and realizing that on the whole, he lived a life pleasing to God. And it's possible for us to do that too. But you might be saying, wait a minute. How can David say that he lived a righteous life? Come on. What about that time when he stole another man's wife and then had the husband murdered? Good question. Legitimate question. Here the gospel comes in. David committed horrible sin, terrible sin that cannot cannot be explained away, cannot be minimized. But do you remember David sincerely repented? And this should encourage us too, friends, because it's possible to follow and please God even after horrible sin. If we repent, if we truly repent, we've never gone too far off the rails to come back to God. You've never gone too far off the rails to come back to God. Despite those terrible sins in aggregate, David was faithful to God. So each of us should ask ourselves, what does my life look in aggregate? Am I repentant of my sins? What is the general tenor and direction of my life? Could I look back and say, I've tried to be faithful. If you're believing the gospel and doing faith-filled good works, then at the end of your life, you can humbly, yet confidently, expect for the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But if in examining yourself, you find that you've not been a faithful servant or that you've never bowed your knee to the Lord, what can you do? Is there any hope for somebody like that? Well, yes. Yes, there is. You can repent. You can repent today. You know, repentance is not just feeling sorry, but it's also turning around. It's about turning around and going in a different direction. So if this is you, you can confess your sin to the Lord today. Forsake it. Come to Jesus in faith that his death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin, because it is. Jesus himself said in John 6.37, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus never turns away a humble and repentant sinner, so come to him. Come to him, whether it's the first time or it's just been a long time. And the Lord will start working on you. He'll start sanctifying you, making you holy. Don't worry if it feels like you're starting from zero. You can come to Him. So we've seen in these verses 21 to 31 that God delights in humble, faithful obedience. Now remember, we're on the home stretch now. When we turn to the next section, we see a third thing that God delights in. Answer number three from verses 32 through 49, we see that God delights when we fight with his strength. God delights when we fight with his strength. After verse 31, the poem changes direction. It's not focused on David's weakness anymore or his faithfulness, but it's focused on how God used David to establish his people in the promised land. And it may seem a little bit more distant from us. He's talking about winning military victories Fighting with a sword, thrusting people through, etc. You know, back then it was common to celebrate the victories of a king. But did you notice something when we read it initially? Who's getting the credit in this section? Verses 32 through 49. Who's the one doing the actions? Well, it's God. Look at verse 35. God is the one. He trains my hands for war. Skip down to verse 40. For example, God is the one who's equipping David for the battle. And then it's all kind of comes to a head in verses 48 and 49. Look at, look at those verses. The God, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. God is the one empowering David. And so, God gets the credit. God gets the credit and the praise. So how does that apply to us? Well, there's, there's two ways. First, these verses show us that God empowers even the achievements that we think we can take credit for. Would have been easy for David to show up and talk about how great a warrior he was, but he didn't. He was giving the credit to God because he knew that it was God who was empowering him, his strength, God's strength was the one that was making things happen. Do you recognize that your strength comes from God too? Those brains that got you into an elite university, for example, those are from God. Those skills that got you a promotion recently, those are ultimately from God. Your kind demeanor, your lovable personality, That's from God, too. And you know that recognition should humble us because we're not self-made men and women. We're not. We like to think that we're self-made, but we're not. God is the one who empowers us and brings any good that we have. He brings about any good that we have. So we see that God empowers our achievements here. But secondly, these verses also teach us that the Christian life is a battle. The Christian life is a battle. But wait a minute, you say. Didn't Jesus tell Peter to put away his sword? The kingdom of God doesn't advance through violence, right? And you're right. I'm glad you know that. But when you read the New Testament, have you noticed how often there's violent imagery? Military words used as a metaphor for living the Christian life. The Bible describes the Christian life as spiritual warfare. It's warfare, firstly, against Satan and the devil. You remember the, uh, the passage in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God? You don't need armor unless you're fighting a battle. But that armor, you know, all the things in the armor of God passage, it's talking about faith and prayer. Those are the ways that we wage war against Satan. It's not with literal weapons. But the Christian life is warfare against Satan. The Christian life is also warfare against the flesh. Think about Romans 8. Put to death the deeds of the body, Paul says. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, as the Puritan John Owen famously said. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And then Christian life is warfare with the world as well. Not the people of the world, but we fight against the temptations of the world. James 4 says, you cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. But if we're honest, few of us view our lives this way, right? Few of us engage in the Christian life as if it were war. And this is not a new thing. The uh, 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle said this. He said, There are thousands of men and women who go to churches every Sunday and call themselves Christians, but you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. But true Christianity is a fight Are you praying like the war depends on it? Are you denying yourself, making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires? Or are you helping Satan get behind enemy lines? We would take holiness more seriously if we thought of our lives as a war. And I say that to myself too. But we all need to hear this call to war. But like David, we know that the power to fight doesn't come from ourselves. It's a fight of faith. God's grace empowers that fight. So God delights when we fight with his strength. God delights when we fight with his strength. And that brings us to our final answer to the question of what delights God. Answer number four, God delights in saving the nations. God delights in saving the nations. We see that in verses 50 and 51. I'm going to read those again. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now these are the capstone of the poem. In these verses, the picture is that David sits enthroned as the victorious king. He's conquered the nations all around, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, everybody. And he sings praises to God because God's the one who did it. God's the one who empowered him and established the kingdom. But we know what happened to the kingdom a few years later, right? Things seemed good under David. They seemed okay under Solomon. And then basically everything fell apart. In just a few hundred years, the kingdom of Israel was basically no more. It was gone. They'd been exiled to Babylon And it looked like the Davidic king, the Davidic dynasty, had come to an end. But that wasn't the end of the story, right? That wasn't the end of the story. And in fact, in this chapter, 2 Samuel 22, we find a preparation for the climax of the biblical story in Jesus Christ. It's pretty amazing. Let's turn to the book of Romans, chapter 15, so we can see this. Romans, chapter 15. It's after the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's a long letter from the Apostle Paul. So turn to the book of Romans, chapter 15, so we can see this. Romans fifteen eight is where we're going to start. The Apostle Paul is wrapping up his letter, and he's reflecting on how amazing it is that the good news of Jesus was not only limited to the Jews, but that it went out to all the nations, the Gentiles. Gentiles are the non-Jewish nations. And Paul finds this worldwide spread of the gospel predicted in the Old Testament. But you might be surprised where he finds it. So let's look at verses 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's uh, truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations, might glorify God for his mercy. And then Paul quotes the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Do you recognize that? Look back at 2nd Samuel 22:50. It's that verse. He's quoting 2nd Samuel 22:50. Now what what does this mean? I can say that wouldn't have been one of the verses I would have chosen to talk about the spread of the gospel, but we can learn from Paul how we can read the Old Testament and how it applies to our lives. And when you realize what's going on here, it's mind-blowing. Paul sees a shadowy prediction of King Jesus and the gospel's peaceful conquest of the nations in this poem about David's victories. If you look back at verse 51, you're going to see there's a bunch of gospel bombs waiting to go off. If you've read the New Testament, Jesus is the prophesied offspring of David. Jesus is the true anointed one. Anointed, Hebrew, in Hebrew that's, Messiah, Messiah. It gets translated into Greek as Christos, Christ. So Jesus is here in a shadowy sense in 2 Samuel 22. As David sang God's praises among the nations, in an even greater way, the Gentiles will join in the song to God alongside the Jews because of how they've found salvation in Christ. A worldwide kingdom of God with Jesus as the king was in God's plan from the very beginning. And it's hinted here. He gives us a little hint, even here in this obscure chapter in 2 Samuel. This makes me think of how Renaissance painters are well-known for sometimes painting their own face onto a historical figure or a philosopher or something. There's some people who think that the oldest Da Vinci painting of the angel Gabriel is actually a self-portrait of da Vinci as a young man. In a way, when the Lord inspired David to write this song, he meant for us to not only see David here, but to see himself. So as he was painting David, we see that David looks like Jesus. David also looks kind of like Jesus. So when we read this chapter, we should see God's faithfulness and delight in delivering his chosen king, David, yes, we should see that. But we should also see, in a shadowy way, that David was preparing the way for the greatest victory of all, the conquest of the nations through the gospel of the crucified king, Jesus. And that ultimate victory of the gospel brings God delight. And bringing it back to Jesus is the right place for us to end this afternoon. So just to recap, we've been asking what delights God? We saw that God delights in being our refuge. He delights in humble faithful obedience. He delights when we fight with his strength and he delights to save all types of people from all over the world. All of these things can only happen because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus did. Living for us, dying for us on the cross, and rising from the grave for us. And the Lord invites us to delight him and to delight in him this afternoon. So as we go from here, let's think about how can we delight God today? How can we delight in God today? Because remember, in Christ, he delights in us. The Lord delights in us. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that every jot and tittle is inspired by you. We thank you that that all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ and that you have communicated to us through Christ and through his word. Lord, help us to to delight you. God, we need your grace. We need your strength to delight you, to please you. But we thank you that it's possible by grace, through faith. It is possible. It is possible for our faith-filled obedience to, to bring you delight. So I pray for my brothers and sisters, especially any who, who have felt distant from God or who have felt like you're impossible to please. What's, what's the point anyway? I pray that they would be reminded that you love them in Christ and that, that their actions, their obedience means something and it pleases you because you love them and you're a good heavenly father. And I pray for those who may not know you, Lord, who may not have bowed the knee to you yet. I pray that they would see how beautiful you are, how loving and good and good. And it is so good to follow you and to trust you and obey you. So I pray that they would see the goodness of God in Christ today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.